Now, I am, I'm going to be speaking on a, on a passage today, and uh, in case you're wondering or looking at, at your watch, I'm going to keep it short. But um, the passage today was chosen because we're in a series thanking God, uh, and we're going through a bunch of things that Jesus taught uh, about what it is that we're to be thankful to God for. And uh, this passage actually was the first passage that was ever preached at a public gathering at City Light from Luke 19, 1 to 10. And I was going through this with Gavin. He actually couldn't remember that that was the passage that he preached on, but I remembered it clearly enough. And so I thought it would be fitting uh, for this one to do that. And it was, it's been a reminder, even as we put these things together, uh, that Gavin and I have been serving in ministry alongside one another for a long time. Facebook is always trying to get me to be more interactive on Facebook, and so every now and then they just push things up my feed to try and get me to share them. But the one that came up this week uh, was this one, if it's going to come up on the screen for you. And this was a memory from 12 years ago. Uh, I didn't share it. I screenshotted it. So got your Facebook, um, even though I guess we're on there right now. So I guess they won in a way. Well played, Zuckerberg. Um, but uh, this was a photo from our first Fiji trip, which was a mission trip that Gav had the idea to do for our youth to take them over. Instead of schoolies, they'd go and serve in the village over there. And that was at the, the hotel. That's not one bed, by the way. We are, we are tight as friends. We just, we've never made it to that level. It's just it's kind of a parallax thing. There's two beds, and they're, they're sort of spaced apart. But that was a mission trip that we had some crazy memories from, such as going to a youth camp that we were helping to serve on while we were in Fiji that had a program with organized time from 5 a.m. all the way through to 11 p.m., but it was okay because after that you could get the solid rest on the back of a cupboard that had been tipped over with a foam mat that was uh, not the easiest to look at or lie on. Uh, and meanwhile, people were just going throughout the night and whatnot. So look, we've had some, some crazy times over the year, but it's been a blessing to be in ministry together and to be in ministry with someone who's willing to really take risks for the Lord to see the kingdom grow. And so uh, it's a blessing to be able to speak from Luke 19, 1-10 today. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's Word, He would open our hearts, and that as City Light set out to do from the beginning, that we would continue to be all about Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we praise You that You are so good to us. We praise You that You love us, and that You give us reminders daily of Your love for us, even in a season as crazy and chaotic as it is at the moment, that You remind us constantly that you are at work, that you are transforming hearts and minds, and you are bringing all things together under one head, even Christ. And as we look at Jesus' words today from Luke 19, may we see how good it is to serve a king who would come to save us. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, how do you think Jesus feels about sinners? How does he act around them? That's a question worth asking. I have, a, I have a small scar under my moustache here that some of you may have noticed if you've been that up close and personal, but the story behind it was it was from the first and only time I had to get stitches. It was a skating accident, the board had kind of flipped up and hit me in the face and cut me almost through to the teeth, and, um, and it, was the, it was the most significant kind of gash that I'd ever received. So at that point, I had to go through the city with my cracked face and try and find someone who was going to stitch me up. And everywhere I went, I'd get similar reactions. Every time people would see me, and it was an understandable reaction, people would kind of recoil. 
I was bleeding pretty profusely down my face. I wasn't sure if people could see my teeth through my lip. They couldn't, but it was all right. But I wasn't sure what was actually happening. Um, but everywhere I went, people would kind of look away. Or um, when I got to them, they, they'd find it hard to maintain eye contact because they were looking at it but trying to not look at it or whatever it was. I remember one particular reaction was someone who I was asking just if they knew where a medical center was. They kept doing that thing where they were like touching their lip. Like the, you know, like when you lick your teeth when someone's got something in their teeth and they kept doing that because obviously they couldn't stop thinking about it and it was just this this constant thing everywhere I went people would just would would take a backward step and understandably because they didn't know if I'd been in a fight or what had happened they didn't know if I was carrying a disease I guess you just I expected it wherever I was going to go someone was going to recoil from me now I wonder if you've ever thought is that how God feels about us If God is holy and pure and righteous and full of truth and goodness, how do you imagine God would be around sinners? Now, this might seem like a stretch for you to imagine a God if you are someone who would call yourself sort of agnostic or even atheist or skeptical, or even if you just would say, I'm not particularly spiritual. But I don't think it's too hard to imagine that if there was a holy God, how would he interact with sinners? I think many of us imagine that if there was a God like the God of the Bible who came to earth, he would be like a, a royal wading through mud, kind of tiptoeing around or trying not to touch things, maybe putting a handkerchief over things before picking them up, trying to avoid as much contact as possible, resenting every minute, can't wait to kind of get out of here. But more personally, maybe if I was to sharpen the question, how do you think Jesus would relate to you? Do you imagine that he'd treat you a bit like you were bleeding from the face, that he would wince and move away? He might pat you on the shoulder from the distance and offer a distant comfort. Of course, we don't have to wonder what God would be like around sinners. The extraordinary claim of the Bible is that Jesus was God in human form among us. And what we see from this passage specifically is what God is like with sinful people. And the extraordinary truth is that God is not, does not withdraw. Strangely enough, Jesus seems to be drawn to sinners. Rather than repelled by us, he is drawn to sinful people. And it draws from him his love and his compassion. And we see this play out in real time with a real person whose name is recorded for us here in this story, a man called Zacchaeus. And so I'm going to walk through this story with you now. It's, it's an orderly account laid out in the Gospel of Luke, who was a physician or a doctor. We know this from the book of Acts. And he was likely commissioned by a guy called Theophilus, probably a rich benefactor, to put together an orderly account of Jesus' life. And one of the features of the Gospel of Luke is that the issue of money comes up a lot. It's very closely tied with salvation and knowing Jesus. And what happens is how people relate to money and how people relate to God are often parallel. And here we see the story of a guy called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we're told, is a very rich person. Look what it says in Luke 19, 1-2. It says, He entered Jericho, Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. So Jesus heading through Jericho, a city that was known in the Bible for an extraordinary military intervention that God did in the Old Testament through his people. And Jesus is heading through this famous city, and we're told that there was a tax collector who lived there named Zacchaeus. Now at this point, if this was a play, this would be the part where everyone in the ancient Near East would be like, boo, as soon as you hear tax collector, let alone chief tax collector, 
people would have been shocked. And the reason for that was they weren't accountants like they are these days. A tax collector was someone who, though they were Jewish and an Israelite, worked for the Roman occupying force, the government, and they would collect taxes for the Romans, which was bad enough for the start. So you're taking our money and you're giving it away to the people we don't like who suppress us and keep us down. But it's worse than that because what tax collectors would do, the whole, I guess, benefit of being a tax collector was that you could take as much money as you possibly could on top of what you were meant to take for the government. So whatever you could extort from people, you could use Roman force, the soldiers, to get it out of people. So they betrayed their people by working for the Romans, then they betrayed them by taking money from them, then they betrayed them by taking even more money from them. And the worst thing is that Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. So he is so wicked that when other people want to learn how to be wicked, he teaches them how to do it. He is a chief extortioner. And so as if it needed to be said, Luke mentions here, oh, and by the way, he's rich. So there is almost no grounds here on which you could feel sorry for him. You might feel sorry for a crook who was also down on their luck or didn't have much money, but here is a crook who is filthy rich as well while all around him suffer and struggle for money. He's a traitor, he's a thief and a bully, and he's rich, and there is very little reason why you'd feel sorry for this man. But the next part is hard to gauge as to whether or not Luke is kind of having a bit of a dig, but look at what he says about Zacchaeus going forward. Luke 19, 3-4. It says, And he was seeking to see Jesus, who, uh, uh, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he just had to mention that. He's a little man. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I love, that, I love that Luke includes here that he was short. And I can't tell if it's like ancient nearest in humor or not. But he just mentions he's, he's not just one of those guys who's 5'11", but says they're about six foot. He's like short, short. And it's this funny kind of thing. It almost makes him more villainous, doesn't it? The idea of having someone who's little and rich and extorting people. You th- it kind of makes you think of someone who's greedy and awful but also not willing to do their own dirty work, will get big thugs to kind of carry it out. Again, it's just making him so villainous, isn't it? And here as well, it's such a humiliating image. A grown man climbing a tree. When was the last time you saw a grown man climb a tree? Let alone a short, rich man up a tree. It's a great image, isn't it? And it's it's meant to be, I guess, in some ways humiliating. But the thing about it is, I think what Luke is trying to communicate is, imagine how desperate you would have to be to see someone, to set aside your dignity, knowing that the crowd probably already hate him. He is so distracted from that and wanting to see Jesus that he's almost forgotten about his public image, and he's climbed up this tree like a child to see this thing passing by, Jesus. And so then he, waits, he goes up the sycamore tree and he waits and Jesus comes by. And then we read this, Luke 19, 5-6. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. See, Jesus just had this presence about him, didn't he? This happens so often in the accounts that he will just say to someone, I'm going to your house, and they're like, yeah, that's fine. It's like Zacchaeus, he looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and it's like he's seen an old friend. He's like, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there? That's mental. Grown-ups don't climb trees. Get get down here. We're going to your place for a barbie. And Zacchaeus, 
I guess like many of us, when you're kind of overawed by the person you're with, just kind of goes along with it. He's, just, he's up for it. It's kind of like when you're in an expensive shop and you pay for something and you think it's going to be way cheaper, it's on special and it's not. And they're like, that'll be $300. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was going to get two. No, I'll just get the one today. That's fine. Thank you. But here, Jesus says, I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus is just overawed. And he's like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. But everyone else sees this and they're not that happy about it. Look what they comment. In Luke 19.7, it says, And they saw it, and they all grumbled, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Zacchaeus may not be that aware of what's going on around him, but Jesus is, and he knows what he's doing. He sees a chief tax collector in a tree trying to see him, and he says, I'm going to your place. And he knows that in an ancient culture, similar to today, that to be invited into someone's house is to fellowship with them, is to be connected to them or associated with them. It's not a matter of just being fed. It's a matter of saying, we're friends. And Jesus is coming and declaring that he's friends with people like chief tax collectors. And he's doing this publicly because he wants to make a very public statement about what kind of king he is to be. We've been watching, we've been watching The Crown a little bit lately. And you know what? If you're online and you've been watching it too, just, just drop us a little comment there. I want to know there's a little bit of love out there for the crown. And I also want to know if you too got caught in a deep dive afterwards about you know, fact-checking things about Diana or Charles or that sort of thing. I'm not ashamed to admit it. We did. We followed up with one documentary and then maybe two and who knows from there. But uh, one of the things that was interesting early on, it's an incredibly sad story, by the way, so if you're going to watch it, make sure you're in a, a safe mood. But... Um, one of the things she did on an early tour to the U.S. was to travel to particularly poor parts of town and hospitals and orphanages as a declaration of what kind of royal she was going to be, that she was going to be the princess of the people. And so she went to areas that royals previously had never visited, hospitals for kids who were suffering from AIDS as part of the epidemic in the 80s. And it really resounded with the people. Now, look, I know it's hard to be of the people when... You, you don't have to do anything and you're worth however many millions and whatever it is. But it was meant to be a declaration that she's going to be the kind of royal who wasn't going to sit off in a palace but actually be among the people. In the same way, when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I'm going to your place, it's a declaration of what kind of king he's going to be. He's going to be a king who is a friend of sinners. But more than that, he's not going to associate with them to become like them or to become an accomplice to them. He's there to see them not affirmed, but transformed. He's not there to affirm them in sin, but to transform them from sin. And then look what happens next in the story. In Luke 19, 8-9, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my gifts I give... <laughs> the gifts. Let me start again. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So what, what's happened here? Seemingly nothing. It's a, it's a funny little exchange on the street where a guy in a tree is called out by the guy who's on the road and says, Come down and I'm going to go to your place. And then all of a sudden... It seems like before they've even gone to his house, Zacchaeus says, God, 
I'm, I'm going to give away everything. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay it back. And not only pay it back, but I'm going to pay restoration on top of that. And I don't care what it costs me. And so this guy, who clearly has loved money enough to be a traitor, to sin against people high-handedly, to hurt and to harm people, to intimidate, to be a standover man, all of a sudden, the way he relates to money is completely different. It's like he doesn't even want it. He went from being someone who was so greedy for money that he would harm and trample on others to someone who's almost allergic to it and says, you know what, I don't even want it anymore. And what's happened in this little moment is that Zacchaeus, in an instant, has understood the gospel. He's understood that he was a sinner and that Jesus, God himself, was willing to forgive his sin, to wash him completely clean and to actually be his friend, to be in fellowship with him. And at this point, he had no idea what it would cost Jesus to forgive his sin. He had no idea that it was going to cost Jesus his very life, that Christ would have to face the wrath of God that Zacchaeus had earned in order that Zacchaeus might be set free and made new. He had no idea what it would cost Jesus to do this. It was just a simple exchange where Jesus said, hey, I want to come around to your place. And in that moment, Zacchaeus understood the gospel, that he was forgiven that his sin was washed away, and that he was able to be in relationship with his creator God in that moment. Jesus came to declare what kind of royal he would be, not one who was allergic to the sinners or, or really you know, repelled by them, but one who was drawn to sinners. And he confirms everything that we're thinking about this story by the final line of the story. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, so that's his favorite way of talking about himself, if you're with us for the Daniel series, you'll see it's part of the prophecies that were about Jesus, that he, there would be a son of man, someone from among humankind who would be a forever king. And he says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come just to sympathize with the lost, though he did. He didn't come to be lost with the lost. He came to find lost people and to save them. I promise this will be my last one for the crown for the year because this is our last Sunday, so whatever. But uh, in, you know, there's a bit of a controversy about how true the stories are and all of that. But there is, a, there is one episode where the queen goes to meet with her children individually to just find out where they're up to. And so she, um, she goes to see Charles, Andrew, Anne and Edward. And the results are, how do you put it, disappointing to say the least. As she goes around to them, she just finds that their lives are, are train wrecks. And she comes back to her husband to kind of debrief about the whole experience and how disillusioning it was to see where the children are up to and maybe feeling some kind of guilt as a mum as to where she's gone wrong or something like that. But she says to him, Edward is vindictive but also bullied. Andrew is cruel. Charles is a narcissist. Anne is full of rage and betrayal. And then she says, they're all lost. And it's funny, that term lost is like, in a sense it's indefinable, but in another way we kind of get what she means, right? When a person doesn't know where they should be, but knows that they are not where they should be, they feel lost. When their life isn't what it's supposed to be, they very much feel lost. And the hard thing about being lost is you can't get yourself unlost. That's the whole problem with being lost. You don't know, you know that things are wrong, and this is not the way it should be. When you're talking about being lost existentially, 
You know that this isn't how life is supposed to be, but you don't really know how to put it back together or what to do. What you need is for someone to come in and to find you and to show you the way. This week, in our series on Thanks Be to God, we are thanking God for salvation. That we didn't find ourselves. That contrary to our culture that says we have all the answers inside of us, we found that in Jesus that we didn't. And we needed God to enter human history and to come and find us and save us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was lost and perhaps he kind of knew it. And he knew something about how his living wasn't quite right. And maybe he lost sleep over it at times or whatever it was. But it was only when he saw Jesus that he really understood how lost he had been and how found he was in that moment. Thank God that he is the kind of God who comes to get us. In the chaos and confusion of a year like 2020, it's clear that as humankind we have neither the resources nor the knowledge to get ourselves out of this mess. And sure, there'll be another side to this pandemic, but there'll be other things and tribulations and trials. We need someone to fix this place up. Praise God that he is the kind of God who comes to seek and save the lost. That none of us have sought him out and yet he has sought us out. Years ago, and it would have been 2011, I think now, we, so my wife Mel and I, and Katie and Gav, sat down in their lounge room in Dremoyne. 2011? Surely. And it was just the four of us, and that was where uh, Gav had laid out the, the idea of, hey, look, what if we were to plant a church? And that was the moment we started dreaming and thinking about things and had no idea, we didn't know about this building at that point, we didn't know about anything else, but all we had was our own experience of being saved. The Gav who was saved in his teens and Katie and and her family who were saved out of a religious group that was opposed to Christ, that myself and Mel who had come to know salvation as well, all we knew was that Jesus had saved us and we wanted other people to know how good he was as well. That he had transformed our lives completely and we wanted other people to experience what we had experienced in him. And because of that, many of you who are tuning in and listening have experienced that through this ministry. That in that moment that God had put on Gav's heart to plant a church, that he already had kindness intended for so many of you who are listening or tuning in or have been a part of this ministry at City Light, who have either come to faith for the first time or who were wayward and struggling and actually for the first time found a church community where you grew and thrived, where church was family, where you knew and loved Jesus. Or for you, if it was just a a group where you actually for the first time were on mission for Jesus and growing in your faith. All of this came about because God is the kind of God who comes and seeks and saves the lost. He doesn't wait for our initiative because if he did, he'd be waiting forever. And God put this on, on Gav's heart many years ago. And our prayer is that that would be City Light's legacy going forward. It would be a church even into 2021, whatever is to come would be about seeing people saved and seeing people grow in their faith and seeing Jesus, who is so good, be honored and enjoyed. Gav's passion, and in our time in ministry, it, it really all began simply, even when we were back starting a youth group right through the church plan, all began simply with this, the sense that God is so good and so worthy of worship and seeing how few people around us worshipped him and wanting people to enjoy him and know him more. And this really is the heart of Christian love, to share what you enjoy most deeply. And so our prayer going forward 
is that God would continue to do that work in their lives and in our life as a church community. We thank God for Gavin Katie. And we thank God for salvation. And in 2021, may we see many sons and daughters come to know and love Christ with all their heart. We're going to pray and then sing. Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks us out. That even in our sin and rebellion, you do not leave us stuck, but you sent Christ in the likeness of human flesh to die in our place, to live the righteous life that we could not live, so that we might be set free and forgiven, and so that we might have a relationship with you and might enjoy you as you fully deserve. And Father, we just pray that you would do this and continue to do it in the life of the Mork family and of this church, that you might be glorified in your people. Father, we praise you for this and ask that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.